Welcome to the Beyond Sunday podcast, where we bring Sunday home. Join us as we dive deeper into First Baptist's weekly sermons, discuss practical applications, and answer your questions. Hello and welcome to the Beyond Sunday podcast. I'm Jordan Upton, the Director of Broadcast and Media Outreach here at First Baptist, and with me as always is Pastor Jeff Reynolds. Jeff, how are you doing today? Doing great, Jordan. How are you today? I'm great. How was your weekend? You know, it was pretty good. Busy as usual, but uh, but pretty good. How about you? Good. Yeah. Got to spend it with family and uh, dear friends. So That's yeah. awesome. So we'll dive right in. Uh, today's portion is a little shorter than we have been going with, but no less potent. It's James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So before we dive into that passage, let's just Define what James means by works. I think that when James references works, he means good deeds done uh, that are good as defined by God. And so I think that the the works that he mentions are those that are spirit-empowered works that honor God and bless others. So with that, we're going to dive into talking a little bit more about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You talked a little bit about him on Sunday. He was living during the time of Nazi Germany. He was a theologian. He opposed Nazism and Hitler and ran a seminary underground, to my understanding, which Mm -hmm. is incredible. So he wrote The Cost of Discipleship, and in that book he writes, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. On the other hand, he calls for costly grace, which he writes is costly because it calls us to follow and is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. So how does grace become costly in the life of a believer? I think the answer is simple, uh, that we trust and follow Jesus. And both of those, both of those words matter. We trust him. We trust him as God's only son who came, died on the cross, rose again from the grave and has ascended into heaven. And one day will return to gather his church and judge the world. So we trust that the the gospel message is true. We trust that Jesus has done what he, uh, the Bible tells us he has done and that he will do what he told us he would do. But then we follow him. And that's really the content of the call of costly grace when Jesus says, follow me. His call to every would-be disciple throughout the Gospels is the same, follow me. And as you look through the book of Acts, the same call is there as it is for us today to trust Jesus and to actually follow him. And that's what that's what Bonhoeffer was getting at. He was saying that the call to Jesus is, is the call to a life of discipleship. You know, our salvation is not something that we get taken care of. It's it's not a box that we check to say, okay, there's that heavenly insurance policy, and now I'm ready to die. No, our salvation is leaving the life we used to live to give it all up to follow Jesus. And so that's what Bonhoeffer says. And actually, I've got my copy of The Cost of Discipleship here. Um, If you have a copy of this, listener, it may sound a little bit different because this is a relatively recent translation. Obviously, Bonhoeffer wrote in German. Mm -hmm. But I want to read the more extended 
passage of how he defines costly grace, because I think it's worth hearing. And so again, I'm quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer here from The Cost of Discipleship. He says, "'Costly grace is the hidden treasure in the field for the sake of which people go and sell with joy everything they have. It is the costly pearl for whose price the merchant sells all that he has. It is Christ's sovereignty for the sake of which you tear out an eye if it causes you to stumble.'" It is the call of Jesus Christ which causes a disciple to leave his nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which one has to knock. It is costly because it calls to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because it thereby makes them live. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, grace is costly because it was costly to God, because it costs God the life of God's Son. You were bought with a price, the Bible says. And because nothing can be cheap to us which is costly to God. Above all, it is grace because the life of God's Son was not too costly for God to give in order to make us live. God did indeed give Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Costly grace is grace as God's holy treasure, which must be protected from the world and which must not be thrown to dogs. Thus it is grace as living word, word of God, which God speaks as God pleases. It comes to us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a forgiving word to the fearful spirit and the broken heart. Grace is costly because it forces people under the yoke of following Jesus Christ it is grace when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wow. So so such a deep and meaningful definition. And then I'd actually like to read a little bit further because he then gives an example. And the example he gives is the Apostle Peter. Mm. So you think about Peter's journey. Went from fisherman, unbelieving fisherman, doubting fisherman. You have the miraculous catch. He falls on his knees. I'm not worthy to be near you, Lord. Um, Jesus calls him to follow him, and Peter does. Peter has this amazing journey of uh, growth throughout his time of following Jesus, but even at the end, when it's all on the line, what does Peter do? He fails. He denies Jesus three times. And yet Peter is still used of God. He's reinstated by Christ, and then he is the voice of the apostles as he stands at Pentecost to proclaim that Jesus Christ, whom you all crucified— he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, and only by faith in Him might you be saved. Well, listen to how Bonhoeffer talks about this costly grace in the life of the Apostle Peter. Again, I'm quoting Bonhoeffer. Twice the call went out to Peter, follow me. It was Jesus' first and last word to his disciple. His whole life lies between these two calls. The first time, in response to Jesus' call, Peter left his nets, his vocation at the Sea of Galilee, and followed him on his word. The last time, the resurrected one finds him at his old vocation, again at the Sea of Galilee, and again he calls, follow me. Between the two lies a whole life of discipleship following Christ. At its center stands Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ of God. The same message is proclaimed to Peter three times, at the beginning, at the end, and in Caesarea Philippi, namely, that Christ is his Lord and God. It is the same grace of Christ which summons him, follow me. This same grace also reveals itself to him in his confessing the Son of God. 
So the idea for us is that, number one, we're not going to follow Jesus perfectly. Um, we're going to mess up. We're going to fail. Um, we, will, we will always need the grace of God. And I was running this morning and just thinking about this, this concept that how does grace become costly in the life of a believer? Well, it's costly because I always need it. Because like I was running up Lover's Lane this morning. I was thinking, I, I need God's grace in every moment. It's mm-hmm. not that I needed it to initiate my relationship with Jesus. It's that I needed it to take the next step and the next step and the next step. And, and frankly, I was coming up a hill, and, and you know, preachers can allegorize anything. And I'm thinking <laughs> about this hill is like life. You know, sometimes you're going up a hill, and sometimes you're going down a hill. And, and no matter what you're experiencing, whether uphill, downhill, or perfectly flat— you still need God's grace to take the next step. And so it's this utter reliance upon the grace of God that I need thee every hour, as the song says. And uh, I think that's how we understand what costly grace is in our lives as believers. So on the flip side, you also referenced Alan Jackson's lyric from Where I Come From. About, <laughs> Another great theologian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In Alan the same Jackson. breath, we're <laughs> right, right. Bonhoeffer and Jackson. <laughs> So you referenced how he says, I'm working hard to get to heaven. Uh, and you pointed out that our works aren't what saves us. So my question to you is, which do you think is the bigger temptation or pratfall for believers today? Belief in cheap grace or belief in works-based salvation? So I think that different cultures can experience different levels of temptation with these things. And, and here in the Bible Belt, I think we have them both. Hmm. And I think that that to some degree we have them equally. Um, The big theological terms for these issues would be legalism, and legalism says, I'm working my way to heaven. My good deeds are earning for me um, that heavenly reward. Licentiousness is the other word, and that is, I'm covered by the grace of God. I can do what I want. And both of those are addressed in the Bible. Uh, For example, the entire book of Galatians, which we're going through on our reading plan right now, uh, today for me in the reading plan was Galatians chapter 3. We're recording this before it goes out. And Galatians chapter 3 begins with, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You began with Christ. Why do you think that you now are earning your salvation by your works? And I'm paraphrasing there. So this idea that, well, I'm going to heaven because I do the right things. I'm not like those people. I don't drink. I don't chew. I don't go with those that do, you know, that sort of a thing. And I think that that pride before God is very, very dangerous. Um, I said it on Sunday as none of us will stand before the judgment throne of God and say, you're welcome, Lord, for the way that I live my life. That is that is a hubris that is unimaginable in the presence of God, and yet so many people live that way, and I think all of us are tempted to live that way. Everybody can look at somebody they feel like is worse than them, and that would be a legalistic approach to um, to our faith and to our hope of heaven. I think the other side is equally as deadly, that, yeah, I'm under grace, so I can do whatever I want. Uh, it's the comedian that I referenced, and yeah. again, I will not say the name of the comedian because uh, that was many, many years ago when I saw that, but it so made an impression on me that I just, uh, it was heartbreaking for him to say, you don't understand, my faith means I can do whatever I want, I just got to say the right prayer and I'm good. The thought of standing before God and saying, 
that out loud makes me shudder. And yet there have been times where I've lived my life that way, that oh, I'm under grace, I can do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. And and neither of those, neither of those uh, captures the essence of the biblical teaching. They are both unbiblical. They are both anti-Christ. And so even those who feel like, uh, well, Bonhoeffer would say in The Cost of Discipleship, he says, let's say you're an alcoholic and you give up alcohol. That's wonderful. You should do that. But you're not going to heaven because you gave up alcohol. Let's say you're an adulterer and you quit cheating. That's wonderful. That's great. But you're not going to heaven because you quit cheating. You don't work your way to heaven, even though that's just, those are significantly good works. And so we just have to be careful that we always lean upon the grace of God. Yeah. You know, in talking about the etch-a-sketch theology, as I'm calling it in my head. That's, that's, that's a good term. I think you just coined that. Yeah. So just the idea that you can just say a prayer and then move on, like no repentance, no change of mind, no change of actions, and be fine. This etch-a-sketch theology made me think about the idea that sacrifices in the Old Testament would do away with sin. Right. At times, it seems like the Israelites thought that just by having the temple and doing the right performances, then God would be fine with them. But he kept saying over and over, no, that's not the case. It's not that you're doing the sacrifices, it's that you repent, it's that you obey me, it's that you love me, it's that you don't worship other gods. You, you, know, you can't have the temple of God and idolatry on the side or even in the same temple. There is no sacrifice for intentional sin. There are sacrifices for many different kinds of things and for unintentional sin, but there isn't one for intentional sin. That's why in Psalm 51, after David sinned with Bathsheba, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." So David's not saying that the temple system is bad in his time. He's not saying that the sacrifices being offered in the tabernacle are bad. He's saying that what God wants from him is a repentant heart, not an animal on an altar. That's right. And David's saying that. (laughs) David's saying that after having been caught with Bathsheba and having killed Bathsheba's husband. And, you know, David's brokenhearted by his actions. There was a period of time when David was not brokenhearted and had to be called out. But then his heart turned toward God, and I think that's the journey of discipleship. I messed up. I sinned. I broke God's law. I am broken and contrite over my sin, and I return to the Lord. And uh, Paul wrote to the church at Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I think, you know, every time I preach, I pray, Lord, transform us by the renewing of our minds so that when we encounter your word, number one, we agree with you that what you call sin is sin, and what you call sin in me is sinful. And so as I agree with you, that requires the Spirit's renewing of my mind. Now I am being transformed. I'm no longer being conformed to the pattern of the world. Now I'm being transformed by the renewal of my mind. And what's interesting is that word repent, in the original language in Greek, it's metanoeo, and it literally means change of the mind. So I change my mind about what God calls sin that I previously didn't call sin, and then I am transformed to, uh, to follow the Lord in that regard. So, yeah, it's, it, it is a call to constant 
transformation in our lives. And I think that that's something that's so important. I've heard preachers say, if you're not saved, let's get that taken care of. If you haven't been baptized, let's get that taken care of. And and I get where they're coming from, but the, the problem with that is our faith is not something we get taken care of. Mm. I preach a lot of funerals, and I, I'll share the testimony of someone who has made a profession of faith, who has followed that profession with baptism. Their testimony was that they trusted Jesus, but I don't know their heart. Just like you don't know my heart, and I don't know your heart, but God does. And so I'm constantly saying, okay, Lord, it's not that I'm living in fear of condemnation. Perfect love of God casts out fear but it's constantly coming back to Jesus. What did Peter do after he denied Jesus three times? He came back to the community of Christ. Judas messed up and tried to fix it, took the money back, didn't work, utter despair, hanged himself. Hmm. Peter came back to the community of Christ. After weeping bitterly, he came back, such that when Mary Magdalene came and said, the Lord has risen, Peter was right there with John. And John outran Peter to the tomb, but Peter was more courageous and went inside the tomb. (laughs) So Peter came back to the community of Christ. Well, what do I do when I mess up? I come back to Christ. I come back to the community of Christ because there I find healing, forgiveness, redemption. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And we continue on this journey of discipleship. That goes right into our listener submitted question. Listeners, if you have a question, you can use the link in the description to submit your question. It can be about the sermon on Sunday, like this one is, or it can be about the Christian walk in general. So today's listener question is, in the cost of discipleship, Bonhoeffer writes, happy are they who, knowing that costly grace can live in the world without being of it, who, following Jesus Christ, are so assured of their heavenly citizenship that they are truly free to live their lives in this world. How do we get there, to that truly free place, without turning to works? More specifically, how do I know if it's okay to come home after a great worship service in which I have heard from God and was convicted and turn on the Braves game and deeply care that they win? (laughs) Is that the truly free about which Bonhoeffer writes? Should I instead be working for Christ or reading my Bible or praying as a response to that costly grace? Well, first of all, I think this is a wonderful question, and this is such a thoughtful question from this listener, and I'm so very thankful for it and for the listener. Um, I think it's a question worth asking, and that is that if God has called me to a life of discipleship, am I free to basically enjoy the world? Uh, Now, whether or not you should cheer for the Braves, that's a different question altogether. (laughs) I grew up cheering for the Braves because Ted Turner put them on TBS, and they always interrupted my favorite show. So anyway, um, I think it is absolutely okay for us to enjoy and to feel like we can um, we can enjoy the world in which God has placed us. But, but I think there are some caveats. I think the answer comes down to this. As I enjoy the non-sinful pleasures of this world, am I receiving those pleasures as good gifts from God, acknowledging Him as the great giver of those gifts and even the athletic gifts that the Braves are displaying, Am I thanking him for this period of rest and the happiness that this endeavor is providing me? And am I seeking to glorify him by the way I enjoy the game? Or conversely, have I made an idol of any aspect of this experience? Have I idolized the Braves such that my mood over the next several hours or days hangs upon their victory or defeat? 
Have I idolized this experience such that I forget that there is a God whom I serve during this experience? You know, it's, it's very similar to eating a meal. You know, sometimes we laugh, you know, here in this part of the world, if we sit down to a very unhealthy meal and we pray the Baptist prayer, Lord, thank you for this meal. Please bless it to the nourishment of my body. And you feel bad about it. You know, I don't know if bacon can be anyway. Um, so the idea is I'm, I'm pursuing something that is not sinful inherently. So, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to cheat on my wife and say, Lord, bless this endeavor. That's, that's not it. But there's nothing inherently sinful about resting, nothing inherently sinful about enjoying a Braves game or any other sort of game like that. Um, and I think Paul speaks to this in Colossians. And so I want to read Colossians chapter 2. This is an extended passage, verses 16 through 23. But Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so Paul is saying, look, there are people who would call you to basically a monastic life. You, there were monks back centuries ago who, in order to escape the sinful world, sat on the tops of poles. Literally, that's what they did. And guess what happened? I don't know if any of them admitted it, but I can promise you that even sitting perched atop a pole with no temptation around you, there was still temptation. Mm. There were thoughts that that they that they came across their minds that they very likely entertained, even though they had separated themselves. You know, God's call is not a call to asceticism where I deny myself all the pleasures of this world, but rather it is a call to recognize, number one, I'm not going to indulge sinful pleasures, but number two, even as I enjoy a Braves game or Monday night football or whatever the case may be, I'm going to thank God for it. You know, I mentioned going on a run. I thanked God that I have the ability, that my needs, knees felt well enough to take off on a run. Um, it, it's living life in light of Jesus Christ such that everything I receive that is good is from Him, and everything I want to do with my life, although certainly I do this imperfectly, is meant to glorify Him, to be grateful for every good and perfect gift that He has given. That's really well said. One of my favorite things about Jewish tradition is that there's a blessing for everything. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, a blessing for before meal, a blessing for after meal. There's even a blessing for when you see lightning. But the the idea is that you're always being grateful to God. You're yeah. always giving thanks to Him, and your mind is always on God. You're taking the mundane in life and making it holy and spiritual. So there are good things in this world, and when you live in accordance with God and lift these things up to Him, then you come closer to Him. That's right. 
again, Jeff, thank you today. I got so much out of it. I'm sure the listeners got a lot out of it. Well, thank you, Jordan, for asking remarkably thoughtful questions and to this listener for asking another remarkably thoughtful question. Um, God is good. God is good. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for the costly grace that you have so freely shared with us. Lord, help us not to embrace some sort of cheap grace that would be permissive, that would be, oh, you're covered, go do what you want, because, well, quite frankly, that cheap grace won't hold up too well on the day of judgment. But no, Lord, let us partake of that costly grace which calls us to discipleship, which calls us to lay down our lives to trust and follow Jesus, which calls us to experience the freedom that is found in Jesus. For if the Son has set us free, then we are free indeed. No longer are we slaves to sin, and no longer are we slaves to seeking to earn our way into heaven. But no, Lord, we rest in your grace, and we thank you that as we take your yoke upon ourselves, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So help us like the disciples to trust you and to follow you. Help us like the Apostle Peter, even when we fall, to return to you, to repent. And Lord, we pray that as we continue to receive your grace upon grace, Lord, that we would glorify you with the works that proceed forth from us. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to our channel. To submit a question about Sunday's sermon, the Bible, or walking with Jesus, click the link in the episode description. Our hosts today are Pastor Jeff Reynolds and myself, Jordan Upton. Our engineer is Elliot Beckley.